cities should not get in the business of subsidizing their declining clusters. Should okay, not- I found this on the web for his city should not get in the business of subsidizing the declining questers. This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Greg Schill, a law professor at the University of Iowa. I'm Jeff Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Greg. We are joined today by Clay Gillette, who is the Max Greenberg Professor of Contract Law at NYU School of Law. He is joining us today to talk about his working paper, Remote Work and City Decline, Lessons from the Garment District. Hi, Clay. Welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. This paper has everything, agglomeration, clustering, New York City history, land use and zoning regulation, immigration, changing fashions, and I mean that quite literally, garment, clothing fashions, the role of technology in all of the above, as well as things like the role of shared languages within a particular industry, international trade, and remote work. So bringing us kind of over from industrial history to the present. When I saw this paper, I was just very excited about having you on. So thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So how did the garment industry get its start in New York? Fascinating little historical issue there that's filled with everything from the growth of cities to uh, ethnicity, to industrial policy, to the agglomeration effects. And I might begin by saying I subscribe to the theory that cities are essentially the greatest wealth producing machines that we've ever known. And when I say that, I don't mean necessarily to elevate wealth over anything else, but with wealth comes culture, entertainment, opportunities for leisure time. So having a city that is productive allows people both within and outside the city to pursue their life goals more successfully and more generally than might otherwise be the case. And the Garment Center fits into that story magnificently. So the Garment Center story sort of begins in the late 19th century. Garment production up until that time occurred in a variety of places and often occurred by work simply being done at homes with self-sufficient individuals or by manufacturers or producers contracting out with individuals in different places. With the rise in immigration to the United States, largely from Eastern Europe and largely Jewish in the late 19th century, we get sort of this conglomeration of effects. First of all, there is within the tenements of the Lower East Side, and I certainly do not mean to praise the tenement lifestyle, which was filled with hazards and terrible working conditions. But within those tenements, there was an opportunity for individuals to work with each other, to learn from each other, to share common resources, to have a large population of individuals who are willing to work for relatively low wages at unskilled labor and producers or employers who are willing to contract with these individuals to have garments produced. So these are sort of the ideal conditions for the production of agglomeration benefits. All agglomeration benefits means is the co-location of related industries that allows greater productivity because if an employer and an employee are in close location and they're also in close location with their suppliers, their competitors, their bankers, their financers, then you get a reduced transactions cost. You get the ability to produce goods and services at relatively low cost because the cost of interacting with those you have to deal with in order to produce goods just shrinks. So this huge immigration of, again, largely Jewish Eastern European refugees in the Lower East Side of New York 
willing to work at low wages, cramped into these tenements, means that manufacturers have a steady source of employees. They can monitor these employees relatively easily because the employees are in these relatively confined spaces. And employers want to monitor their employees because they're now beginning to produce for the first time sort of standard goods. So they want these goods to be of common quality, of common design, of common production. And that means they have to monitor these employees and it's easier to monitor in these small spaces. I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I want to organize a few of the things that you've said into themes, which I think are really important and and comes out very clearly in the paper. So there's the relationship between immigration, labor in general, but a specific type of labor force that's able to do this type of work and able to communicate with one another and also being able to be housed in these really terrible conditions, but conditions that that are better than what they faced in Eastern Europe and are a way station to a better life in the United States and also are low cost, which means they can work for the wages that the garment industry is paying. And then there's the standardization, the technology aspect. How does that kind of feed into that and then kind of the change from working remotely at home, sewing and whatnot, to actually coming into the office, a theme that we're familiar with now. How does that all fit together? Essentially, what the garment workers were doing in the late 19th century was the 19th century equivalent of remote work. They were working from home. They were working at home. Their homes were relatively close to each other so that the manufacturers who contracted with, and when I say manufacturers, what I really mean are not people who did the manufacturing, although there was a great deal of division in the way garments were produced. So some manufacturers actually manufactured the goods themselves, but many of them were simply contracting out for pieces of garments, and then they would assemble those pieces. And it was the creation of those pieces that was being done in the tenements under a lot of these contractual arrangements. Remember, I'm the Max Greenberg Professor of Contract Law, so the contract element of of all this is exciting to me as the city's element of all of this. So ultimately, in the very late 19th century, New York City says, you know, this tenement stuff is kind of dangerous and the working conditions are kind of bad. Ultimately, there is a ban passed on at-home manufacturing of this type. That gives rise to these interesting creations called factories. And factories are now located a little north of the Lower East Side. If you're familiar with Manhattan, the Lower East Side is probably a half a mile south, maybe a little bit more, maybe a mile south of where the factories first pop up. When the factories pop up, now individuals have to get to the factories. The workers have to get to the factories. And this is where the city story begins. It's right about this time that New York City starts investing in this interesting infrastructure called the subway. And the subway facilitates the agglomeration effects of garment production and other industrial production in New York City by facilitating transportation of workers to workplace. Now, I'm not claiming that New York City created a subway system to help garment work, but a theme we might come back to is how do cities respond to remote work? How do they grow again in the face of remote work? And I think one lesson to be taken from the garment district story is you don't necessarily do anything industry specific. As a city, if you want to grow, you invest in those characteristics that would be attractive to many industries. You don't try to pick which industry you want and then do what is desirable for that particular industry. Rather, you create mechanisms that would be attractive to any industry. So what is that? Well, number one on the list might be transportation infrastructure. Almost any industry is going to want to be able to connect with, again, customers, employees, suppliers, competitors, financers, bankers, lawyers. It's not always possible to have them within the same relatively dense walking area, in which case you need a transportation network to facilitate that agglomeration network. So the first thing this city needs to do is have a good transportation infrastructure. The federal government suddenly seems to be realizing this 
with the passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Our infrastructure, as we all know, is not ideal. I'm kind of interested in what you said about picking winners as an entry into what I thought was a pretty interesting and important part of the article, which is the mistakes that New York City made as the garment industry was declining. Can you talk about some of those mistakes? So the claim of the paper is the way that cities grow economically is by attracting clusters. Clusters like to come to cities because clusters need a space where multiple firms and their related firms can co-locate. That sounds like a city. And when a city attracts a cluster, it's really sticky because once a cluster forms, no member of that cluster has an incentive to depart because then it loses the agglomeration benefits of co-location. But technology develops, things change, and every once in a while, a cluster goes into decline. Think of the cluster of automobile manufacturing in Detroit, it declined. Think of steel in Pittsburgh, it declined. Think of the taxi industry in New York City, it declined. So how do cities respond when they're faced with a decline of their key cluster. One might think that rational, self-interested, utility-maximizing politicians would say, hmm, how should we adjust? Let's not support this declining cluster. The writing is on the wall, or as I say, with respect to the garment district, the embroidery was on the wall. We need to do something radical here. We need to stop subsidizing this losing industry Maybe we try to switch to a new industry. Maybe we try to increase our infrastructure that would attract other industries. So what you, Jeff, refer to as mistakes, I refer to as the almost inevitable consequences of political economy. That is, what cities tend to do is double down on the dying cluster. That's a story I think you tell very effectively here, and we'll pull that out. So one distinction between the garment cluster and a few others that I think you bring out very effectively in the paper is between producers who own their buildings and ones that don't. And so is it right that many of the garment industry manufacturers, they have somewhat different interests than the landlords of their buildings? Sure. So landlords, and one might think that the city would like to maximize land values, that is, have the land used by firms, individuals that can make the highest valued use of those parcels. For many landlords in the garment district, once garment manufacturing in New York City started to go south, both literally and figuratively, in the post-World War II era, and then increasing dramatically in the 1980s, and even more dramatically with the passage of NAFTA and into the 1990s, Suddenly, landlords realized that other uses of those parcels would return higher rents to them than manufacturing. And the fact that they could get higher rents suggests that the people willing to pay those higher rents were going to make higher valued uses of those parcels than garment manufacturers. So landlords, building owners, parcel owners were willing to enter into long-term leases with offices, not manufacturing, were willing to sell to hotels and have hotels develop. Garment manufacturers found themselves unable to enter into long-term leases because landlords would say, well, right now, it looks like garment manufacturer might be my highest and best use of my land, but garment manufacturing doesn't seem to be doing very well. Two years from now, it might be that there's some alternative use that's going to pay me a higher rent. So yes, the garment manufacturer whom I've been leasing to for the past three decades, I will renew your lease. But instead of a 20-year lease, I'll give you a two-year lease. So this was a problem for garment manufacturers. Whether or not it was a problem for the city depends. It depends on whether you think that the highest use for the landlord really was also the highest use for the city, or whether the garment manufacturers were essentially telling an agglomeration story that goes something like this. Look, if all we have in the garment district, which had been in the 1980s, set in stone by the city's creation of the special garment center district, which created a preservation area within which 
essentially only garment manufacturing could occur. If you think that what the landlords were doing was breaking up that continuous chain of garment manufacturers and related industries, and by breaking up that continuous chain, putting a drugstore or an office building in between a button manufacturer and an embroidery place. If what the landlords were doing was breaking up that continuous chain, then they were in fact diluting the agglomeration benefits that the garment center had pre-1985, or certainly in the early part of the 20th century, that the garment center had created by market forces alone, without any city intervention. It was only in the 1980s with the creation of the special garment center district that suddenly the city said, oh, here's the best way to capture agglomeration benefits. Until then, it had been done by market forces. So when Jeff says, tell me about the mistakes of the city, I would say the mistake of the city was perhaps, depending on whether you think the landlords were breaking up an otherwise effective set of agglomeration benefits. Arguably, the mistake of the city was ossifying a dying industry within a particular location that could have been used for higher and better uses that would have redounded to the ultimate economic benefit of the city. Now, why in the world would the city do that? And there, the key word is politics. It's politics all the way down. You get an entrenched interest group composed of manufacturers, labor unions, city preservationists, the Municipal Art Society, who want to retain the character and industry that has been characteristic of that area for close to 100 years, for 75 to 100 years. And they want to say, we don't want change. The ability of people who don't want change to preserve the status quo should not be underestimated. The ability of those groups to prevail on their elected representatives not to allow change should not be also underestimated. So you get these political forces that fly in the face of economic forces, but for a variety of reasons, best captured way back in the 1980s by the economist Mansur Olson in his wonderful book, The Rise and Fall of Nations. Those industries that want to preserve the status quo have a significant advantage and are often successful. So it was inefficient and it would fail a number of economic tests, but did it work? What is the it? Are you asking it? Did it work? The uh, preservation of the garment center in amber so that other uses were either forbidden or, or subject to an exceptions process that was quite onerous. So in other words, de facto. Did it work? So I think the answer is, of course not. (laughs) If the decline of the garment industry was not due to the loss of agglomeration benefits, if it was instead due to cheaper sources of production elsewhere, the lack of need for those agglomeration benefits because not all firms within the industry enjoyed the same agglomeration benefits and those who enjoyed fewer benefits could leave first. And in fact, what happened, New York City did not lose the garment industry. The garment district lost the garment industry. Where did it go? It went to Brooklyn as a matter of market forces, then facilitated and subsidized by the city. Why did that happen? Well, let's go back to our earlier conversation about the evolution and development of the garment center in the Lower East Side. My explanation for why that happened, it had a lot to do with immigration. Eastern European Jews, largely unskilled, flocked to New York City, migrated to the Lower East Side, needed jobs. The manufacturers of clothing at that time tended to be, and had been for decades, German Jews, not Eastern European Jews. But hey, a Lonsman is a Lonsman. And there was this ethnic affinity during which the Jewish manufacturers said, let's help out our newly arrived co-religionists and give them a hand. So now fast forward to the late 20th century, early 21st century, we have another immigration story. So who's coming to Brooklyn? 
looking for work, willing to do low wage work. As you said, it's sort of a stepping stone to the American dream. Descendants of those who flock to the Lower East Side are not living in the Lower East Side. They're not garment workers. They've moved on. But we have this magnificent group of largely Asian and Southeast Asian immigrants who have come to Brooklyn, come to the Prospect Park area. They live there and are quite willing to do the same kind of work that was being done in the Lower East Side in the late 19th century. Working conditions, it turns out, are about the same. There were extraordinarily bad and have been very bad working conditions in Prospect Park. There's been a few articles, some I cite in the article, some by Terry Hum, about those working conditions. New York City is far more willing and able to regulate those working conditions than it was back in the 19th century. But there are still poor working conditions under those circumstances. But the bottom line is the garment manufacturing migrated, just as it had 100 years before, to the area where the workers resided, reducing those transaction costs, reducing transportation costs, but leaving to the side those garment manufacturers who still wanted to be in the garment district and who were entrenched enough, powerful enough to prevail on their political representatives, both at the city council level and the borough president level and the community board level, to push back on and delay the mayor's plan for moving the garment district out of the garment center and opening up the garden center to industries that had nothing to do with garment manufacturing. Can I ask you to maybe disentangle or distinguish the relative importance of maybe two different kinds of actors in this political story? One kind of actor here is, as you just described, this established incumbent who stands to lose if the agglomeration or the cluster around them unravels, and maybe they have connections to policymakers. A few minutes ago, you also mentioned a different part of this potential political coalition, which is just people who don't like change and who want to preserve things as they've always known them to be. What do you think the relative contribution of those different kinds of actors, both in the history of New York City, but then also more generally facing these kinds of shocks? I don't want to sound like an anti-preservationist. <laughs> There's a lot of criticism of the degree of preservation in New York City. I don't have a sufficiently informed view about that. What I would say is the reason I'm not an anti-preservationist is cities are not fungible. Cities take on identity and it can be important for purposes of civic identity and civic virtue to preserve some of that identity. So the best example I use of this is notwithstanding that what motivates the economy of Pittsburgh these days is what gets referred to as meds and eds rather than industrial production. No one thinks that the Pittsburgh football team is going to be called the Pittsburgh professors. <laughs> stadium subsidies, which the literature seems to suggest are terribly inefficient because they don't return the revenues to cities sufficient to compensate for those subsidies, are often justified on the grounds that having a sports team creates some civic identity. The whole gentrification debate, I think, is an analog to this. So I think going back to the question of should cities simply pursue the highest land value, if we thought the answer to that was yes, then we might be less inclined to criticize gentrification of neighborhoods that serve relatively underserved neighborhoods, neighborhoods that largely house marginalized communities. But 
We do criticize gentrification, even though gentrification might lead to increased land values in those gentrified neighborhoods, in part because we think there is value in preserving the ethnic neighborhoods, the cultural neighborhoods that are being gentrified. So I think cities benefit by having individual identities and neighborhoods within cities benefit from that. So I don't want to come across as arguing that preservation is inherently and necessarily a bad thing. I'm sitting here in Woodstock, Vermont, that tries mightily to make sure that nobody does anything that suggests that Woodstock has evolved. I am allowed to have running water. I am allowed to have indoor bathrooms. But there are things that if I were to suggest be done with my home, I would face the antipathy of my neighbors. So I'm not anti-preservation, but it's always a trade-off. On that point, you describe the protection that the garment industry lobbies for as an implicit subsidy, which I thought was an interesting frame. So an explicit subsidy would be just if the city thought this was really important to keep this cluster, then maybe they could defray some of the rents or otherwise subsidize the industry directly through fiscal policy. But instead, they basically enacted a form of rent control where garment industry manufacturers would only have to compete against one another. And it's a declining industry for space. So that introduces the question of, is that better or worse than the alternative? So I love your analogy to rent control. One might make the following argument. If we were really interested in making sure that individual tenants could have affordable rents, what we would do is we would subsidize their rents and allow landlords to charge market rents, but do something like Section 8 housing and simply provide explicit subsidies to the renters. We don't necessarily do that. With rent control, what we do is we say, instead of using everybody's tax dollars to subsidize rents, we are going to use landlords and capping what they can charge And they are essentially going to be the social tool we use to provide affordable housing. And the reason we do that is, I don't mean to sound too flip with this, because as a political matter, we can. It is politically more acceptable to impose a large burden on a small number of landlords rather than to impose a relatively small burden on all taxpayers of the city by raising their taxes. So I think that, again, is a political decision. So I think we see something similar here. What New York City did with respect to the garment district and the preservation area is say, landlords, we're going to essentially cap your market rents. We're not going to allow you to charge full market rent by renting to someone who will use your building as an office building. Rather, we're going to say you have limited uses for your building. Therefore, the rent you can charge is constrained and garment manufacturers can afford that rent. So we're essentially imposing on a small set of the population the obligation to provide the social good, which one might argue, if it truly is a social good, and these are social goods, should be paid for by society at large, or at least by those who can afford to pay. That is, this should be some kind of a progressive tax that relatively wealthy people pay to subsidize the relatively poor. But we don't necessarily do that. And we don't do it in large part because of politics. I'm just going to read a sentence or two from the paper. I think the lawyer in me wants to make it really clear what the ordinance actually did that the politics enabled. This is in the paper. The ordinance made conversion of manufacturing spaces to offices on the side streets of the garment district contingent on certification from the city planning commission, the very body that had advocated the preservation area. So in other words, it was not by right. It was on a go and beg for permission basis. And then there are some more details there. A regulatory intervention that you say, Clay, increase the costs to innovative non-conforming uses and serve the interests of incumbents regardless of the oncoming decline of the industry. That's a pretty potent outcome for that political coalition. Uh, Yes, they were quite successful as a matter of law. As a matter of practice, 
everyone understood the following. Garment manufacturing was going away. It wasn't coming back to the special district. Landlords skirted the law. They rented to residents. They rented to offices. And everybody winked. It was not as though a garment manufacturer said, hey, I want to locate here and I can't find available rental space. So it was, in fact, the situation that the law got honored through disregard. And that was ultimately what led the city council to open up more space for garment manufacturing while still trying to preserve a significant amount of space for garment manufacturing. Whether that amount of space was actually necessary is unclear to me because this happened in 2018. Of course, 2020, we have the pandemic. Nothing's going on in the garment center or anywhere near the garment center. What has happened since that time? Over 50 hotels have been built. The amount of space currently being used for garment manufacturing in the garment center, I believe, is nowhere near the amount of space that the committee that was created by the politicians in the area to study the future of the garment district after 2015 said would be necessary. They said between 500,000 and 750,000 square feet would be necessary. I've not seen figures by senses that we have not approached anything close or are not approaching anything close to that figure. Something I wanted to ask you about, which is a little bit of a diversion here. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of the article was your description of the emergence of the garment cluster in New York. And especially in this describing this period where the industry is scaling up and becoming increasingly specialized. So you have people who source the materials, people who manufacture or design merchandisers. And a lot of this activity is becoming vertically disintegrated, meaning it used to be in one establishment and now it's across a bunch of different establishments. What are the key developments in that period that you see as sort of facilitating those changes as the industry is scaling up? It's a great question, Jeff. I'm not sure I have a great answer to it because I'm looking at this from a city perspective and I can't claim to be an expert in the development or evolution of the garment industry. But my sense is that there is a degree of specialization occurring. So what you have to begin with is garments. And then suddenly someone recognizes, gosh, if you're wearing a garment, you might want to accessorize it. So I'm going to create belts and I'm going to create some embroidery. And now, gee, we've got to sell those things. But I'm good at manufacturing. I'm not necessarily good at merchandising. So I now need to find someone who is going to merchandise for me. So I need some sort of a seller. And now the seller needs someone to sell to. You're not just going to use the Sears Roebuck catalog. You've got, again, this dense population. And if you can get them to come to a particular location where lots of things are sold, then you're going to get some agglomeration benefits from that. So suddenly we have adjoining the garment center, just a few blocks north, these things called department stores. Now we've got this whole industry and it turns out that department stores catch on and they don't only exist in New York City, they might exist in Philadelphia. So we have these people called buyers who are going to come and purchase from the garment district manufacturers. Well, how are they going to get there? Well, we have this thing called Penn Station that we build. We have these railroads and you can actually get from Philadelphia to New York. Once you're in New York, you need a place to stay. You don't want to go too far. You certainly don't want to go back to Philadelphia, Jeff. Um, <laughs> so you have these things called hotels. And then the manufacturers want to get the buyers to buy from them. So they need to find a way to get the buyers to buy from them rather than to buy from somebody else. Of course, quality of goods matters. But also if you can show the buyers a good time while they're in from Philadelphia, they might be more attracted to you and your goods. So what do you do? You buy some theater tickets and where's the theater <laughs> district? Where's the theater district? Just a little bit north of the garment center. And now you've got this fashion industry that crops up because fashion means Paris, but suddenly in the 1930s, 1940s, Paris is kind of a hard place to manufacture fashion because there are other things going on. So New York says, we're going to become a fashion center. And now what you get, you get designers. 
coming to New York. And you've already had a couple of fashion schools that actually began in the late 19th century within the area that became the Garment Center, but now really take off. So New York City overtakes Paris as a fashion center. And now you get not just the specialists you're talking about, not just the accessorizers and the belt manufacturers and the pins and the buttons, but you also have all these related industries. And this is the beauty of agglomeration. And the only problem is it dissipates with time. Nothing's forever. So with time, other garment centers crop up. Post-World War II, people don't necessarily want fashion. They want casual clothing. New York's not that good at that. Los Angeles is. So Los Angeles becomes the center for casual clothing manufacture. The rise of unions means production gets more expensive. Okay, I'm willing to pay more costs as a manufacturer because of all these agglomeration benefits. But wait a minute. At some point, the agglomeration benefits don't offset those higher labor costs. I'm going to farm the manufacturing out to Massachusetts, to Pennsylvania. And I'll just truck the goods in. So that's the story of both the evolution and dissipation of yeah. the garment. Yeah, I mean, it's a story that's well told in the paper. The timely hook to the paper is about remote work, which we've been yeah. all thinking about for the last few years. Just as a matter of your own journey to this paper, how did you arrive at the idea to think about remote work through the lens of the rise and fall of the garment industry in New York? Hmm, I don't know. I was on sabbatical and <laughs> the paper. <laughs> That's an honest answer. You tell Clay's not on the job market. <laughs> I was actually doing a lot of work a few years ago on the taxi industry in New York City. And this could have been a taxi industry paper because the politics of the taxi industry tempting and to some extent successfully for a long time to keep out the app-based industries, Uber and Lyft, was sort of a fascinating political and city story that has its parallels with the garment district. I sort of done that. I was on a commission set up by the New York City City Council to study taxi medallion sales at the time when taxi drivers were just in the deepest throes of the fall of medallion values. And so I didn't want to tell that story in this paper. I was a little too close to it, and I wasn't sure I could be objective about it. Someday I'll feel more comfortable writing about that story as an academic. And I knew a few things about the garment industry, and I just started reading about it. And the more I read about it, the more I saw these analogs to what was going on, what might go on if remote work threatened the decline of clusters or the need for clusters in cities. Because again, clusters migrate to the same location to capture agglomeration benefits, primarily the benefit of knowledge spillovers. People work together. They therefore serendipitously and unintentionally come up with innovations that no one in that discussion would have had, had she or he been working alone. So those knowledge spillovers really drive innovation. People talk about remote work's benefits, including the loss of all that wasted time at the water cooler. And my response is, no, no, the water cooler is a great benefit. People come to the water cooler and they start talking about the weather. And then someone says, so what are you working on? And the response is, oh, I'm working on this. And the other person in the water cooler says, well, have you thought about that? And have you thought about this? No, I haven't thought about it. That's a great idea. And suddenly the two of them are off together, jointly generating an innovation that neither one necessarily would have come up with alone. I think the best example of this is academic papers. There are more joint authorships that are created in the faculty lounge than there are by people working in isolation in their offices. So when I started reading about remote work and the effect of remote work on cities, I was sort of looking for, well, where has this happened before? Where have clusters gone into decline before? And there are, of course, lots and lots of examples. Again, steel, the automobile industry in Detroit. But I was in New York. So the best source materials and the best literature that was readily at hand 
was New York-based. And there were a couple of articles, there might be Norma Rantisi. She writes about fashion, but she writes about it from this industrial perspective. And I sort of glommed onto those papers and thought, this is wonderful stuff. And I think I've got an angle on it that develops some of her theories and talks about them more from a city and from a legal and from a political perspective. So I think that was really the hook on which I decided to hang my hat. Looking forward with this perspective on the Garment Center experiment kind of in mind, what lessons do you think this leaves us with in thinking of adapting to the impacts of remote work? I'm not sure remote work as a standalone is necessarily here to stay in a widespread way. I keep reading articles, the the most interesting articles in the Wall Street Journal, which reported that Zoom is requiring its employees to come back into the office a couple of days a week. So I think hybrid work is here to stay, but there's a tension. The literature on the productivity of remote work is just now developing, and it's all over the map. There is some literature, and Jeff, this comes from your discipline much more than mine. The economics literature on remote work is very eclectic. Some of it shows productivity decreases. Some of it shows that at least in some industries, there is some evidence of increased productivity with remote work. But there is some evidence of decreased productivity, as you would expect. And if you are a believer in agglomeration benefits, as I am, you don't get sharing, matching, and especially knowledge spillovers on pre-planned Zoom meetings. Now, the technology could get better. It could be easier in five years to hit a button, suddenly call six people together and say, we're not going to have a meeting. Oh, I didn't have the schedule. Yeah, I know. It's kind of a spontaneous, serendipitous meeting. That's how innovation occurs. So the technology is going to continue to develop. But right now, at least, I would anticipate some decline in knowledge spillovers with remote work because you don't have knowledge spillovers in isolation by definition. So increasingly, employers are demanding at least some return to the office, maybe not the five-day work week, but also not fully remote. Even if we're not seeing decline in productivity in those offices, we are certainly seeing declines in other elements of industry that are key to city economic success. Lawyers and financiers who deal in office leasing, they're seeing dramatic declines. Cleaning services for offices, dramatic decline. Restaurants, coffee shops, where office workers used to have lunch and go out for coffee, dramatic declines. You walk around New York City, where I live, Greenwich Village, you would never know that there had been this pandemic thing. You would never know that the sidewalks were once empty. It is just as crowded and as thriving as ever, maybe more so. But you go to Midtown, which is chock-a-block with not full offices, And there's quite salient, tangible decline in activity. Cities are going to have to deal with these declines. So what do cities do? Well, some cities are trying to convert offices to desperately needed housing. Lots has been written about the obstacles to that. First of all, converting to housing from an office building is extremely expensive and therefore does not necessarily give rise to what cities really need, which is not just housing, but affordable housing. Secondly, part of the reason it's so expensive is regulation, 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 and regulation. So the building codes which allow office buildings to be built do not necessarily permit easy transition of those offices to housing. If your building code says every bedroom must have a window, it's going to be hard to have a windowless or small window office building converted to residential purposes. Of course, the first thing that mayors often reach for are subsidies, tax abatements. The mayor of Boston has trotted this out. We'll give tax abatements. The paper goes through the literature on how successful or unsuccessful tax subsidies are in inducing change. Now, this might be a good tax subsidy because cities desperately need housing and housing is very expensive to build and very expensive to convert from office buildings. What I think should not happen is cities should not get in the business of subsidizing their declining clusters. Okay. I found this on the web for a city should not get in the business of subsidizing the declining clusters. Technology. There's the technology at work. 
I remember in class that happened when I was teaching remotely because I said some I said the word serious and Siri understood the word serious as my calling her name. <laughs> so one thing I think we should not do is subsidize the declining clusters. What cities need to do is invest in those investments that appeal to economically useful employers generally. Infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, education, education, and education. Every employer wants a well-trained, well-informed workforce. So education, housing. If you're going to have happy employees, it's going to be because they're living within their means in affordable housing. So housing is extremely important. These are the kinds of investments that cities need to make. Not highly tailored to particular industries, but those investments that have payoffs for large swaths of industries and employers. This has been so fascinating. I've learned so much from uh, the paper and from our conversation about the garment industry and how we should think about this garment district in relation to current challenges. So thank you so much. All right. So this is the part of the show where we discuss recommendations to our listeners. It's called Appendices. So Jeff, what's your appendix? So I have three, <laughs> which I apologize for. The first is just during our conversation came to my mind, which is a beautiful study of agglomeration economies in New York City among advertising agencies. This is the paper by Mohammed Arzaghi and Vernon Henderson the review of economic studies from 2008 called networking off madison avenue just a classic paper that was coming to mind during our conversation and then my other two recommendations are two articles on urban politics and who gets a say and to what ends so the first one is this article by ed glazer and andre schleifer in the journal of law economics and organization from 2005 called the curly effect and the curly effect is named after james michael curly who was a one-time mayor of boston came from a working class Irish background, and that was his political support. And the paper story is that Curley undertook a number of initiatives to make Boston a poorer place in order to induce his political opponents to leave <laughs> the city and shore up his reelection chances. I like that article. And the last one is this recent article by Jerusalem Dempsis and the Atlantic. And this is an article called Trees Not in My Backyard, a story of three trees, an angry community in power in Washington, D.C. And it's a story about who gets the say in city politics and in urban quality of life issues, especially in an environment where elections are not particularly small D democratic and policymakers are not necessarily accountable to the citizenry at large. So I recommend that as well. Neat. Those are some terrific recommendations. Thank you, Jeff. Clay, what's um, your appendix? I just want to say I love the Curly Effect article. I think it's cited in this paper, but then again, I probably cite it in half the papers I write, whether it's relevant or not, because it's such a fun paper. For the city fans in the audience, I'll put in a plug for my sometimes co-author David Schleicher's new book, In a Bad State, about fiscal crises in state and local governments. I find that Joan Didion always seems to have a sense of place in her work, whether it is California and Run River, Salvador, Miami, or New York City. So even if her work is not about places, it is difficult to come away from her work without a sense of place. For those who are just looking for a good binge watch, I'll try to avoid the obvious, such as Succession, which I thought was great. Perhaps the best political series I saw was the Danish series Borgen. And I was also struck by many of the Israeli series, including Fauda, which just depressed me about the inability to solve any problems in that part of the world. But Stissel, which was a little lighter, and the beauty queen of Jerusalem. So I somehow discovered Israeli binge-worthy series. What I wouldn't want to walk away from without recommending, Oppenheimer is one of the great films I've ever seen. And it is a film not simply about the historical events, not simply about the politics, but it is a fabulous film about the creative process. I strongly urge, I'd seen a newspaper article that recommended this. In fact, I think Christopher Nolan recommended it, the director. 
I strongly urge, if at all possible, I don't know if it's going to be possible in Iowa, Greg, to see this on an IMAX screen. It just had such an effect. The sensory effect was so great on an IMAX screen that I definitely want to see it again, but I don't want to see it in a regular theater because I think the effect will be so diluted. But the way that the creative process is represented is worth a movie in and of itself. Well, that is a phenomenal set of recommendations. Thank you. I may have to travel, you know, get on my horse and go find an IMAX. Make sure your passport is in order, Greg. I'm I, going yes. Back the border. Don't want any problems. Thank you. So I'm so happy that you both recommended more than one appendix. That's usually my MO and I feel just happy that, that I'll be in good company today in that regard. Picking up on Clay's comment about a sense of place is a novel that I admittedly am not completely done with yet, but I started over the summer. It came out a long time ago. It's called A Confederacy of Dunces, and it's the only novel. It was actually published posthumously by the author's mother. The author is John Kennedy Toole. It was published in 1980, but it was actually written in the 1960s. And without spoiling anything, it's just very New Orleans. It's very much of New Orleans. It it feels of that place in a very particular way, a way that may not even be possible today because culture has become so much more nationalized than it was at that time. And so it's a funny, tragic comedy kind of a book that gives you a real flavor for local environment. Another recommendation. So today's conversation was about a legislative attempt to sort of freeze an industry in amber, but there's a kind of humorous series about a guy who climbs into a pickle bin in a pickle factory in 1912 or something, and it's frozen in time for a century. And then he comes out in the early 2000s. The story is actually 10 years old. It's called Sellout and uh, by Simon Rich. Is this four-part series in The New Yorker? And we'll throw some links in the show notes. But it's just a very funny story about somebody who comes out of a pickle jar 100 years later in Williamsburg in Brooklyn and has noticed that there are a lot of changes in the community. The industry is gone. So it, today's conversation made me think about it. And then the last one, you know, picking up with the theme of localized industries is a, a Netflix show called Rough Diamonds. And there's only one season right now, but it takes place in Antwerp and it centers on the industry there which for certain legal scholars will bring to mind Lisa Bernstein's work from the 90s on the diamond industry, as well as uh, other sort of institutional economics and contracting work, including Clay's work. So it's a fascinating look at a sort of extended Orthodox Jewish community and their relationship to particular cluster. But also there's some new labor that comes in from Albania and they have new competition located in other countries. And that introduces some pressures that play out in the show. So I think folks might find that interesting. It's a great recommendation, Greg. I wish I thought of it. Thank you so much, Clay, for joining us. This has been a blast. For Densely Speaking, I'm Greg Schill. My thanks to my co-host, Jeff Lynn, as well as Clay Gillette for joining us guests today. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated. 